Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. For some things, once is enough. If you ask me, that's peppers. I think peppers are one of the worst foods I've ever had in my life. And once I tasted them once, I realized I never had to try them ever again. I have never understood why some people take perfectly good meat and stuff it into something so gross as a pepper to try to make that gross pepper taste good. It doesn't matter what kind of pepper it is, bell, red, yellow, orange, green, blue, fried, it doesn't matter. Peppers are one of the nastiest foods I've ever tasted in my entire life. So needless to say, if you come over and you eat at my house, don't be expecting peppers because they're not going to be served because once is enough. Speaking of, all of you Washington Capitals fans out there living it up with your championship gear and your hashtag all caps, and I know we've had some people in the room who went down to the parade and are so happy that a Washington, D.C. sports team finally won a championship Live it up now because this is the only one that you're going to get. And hopefully for you, once is enough. Because the last time a major D.C. sports team won a championship, I think everybody that was in attendance came on their horse to come see the event. It's going to be another 400 years or so before it happens again. So all you D.C. sports fans, now is your chance to live it up. I admit... I'm not a hockey fan. I'm not a D.C. sports teams guy. I'm not even a Baltimore sports teams guy. I love to make fun of the local teams, probably a little too much, actually. But that is ironic because I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. And if you know baseball, you know that they won a championship once a century. So I'm in the same boat where once is enough. And finally, of course, Shane Missler. For Shane, once was enough. You probably have no clue who his name is, but you might have heard his story. In January of this year, Shane won the $450 million Mega Million payout. He said he spent $2 at a 7-Eleven, and he wasn't surprised that he won because he had a lucky feeling when he bought his ticket. To which when I read that, I'm like, bro, you are the worst. Nobody likes you after you say that. But he opted for a one-time payout, and he settled for a mere, uh, just a tiny little bit of that original $450 million. He only ended up with $281,874,999. Now, to put that in perspective, if that money that he earned was what he earned in a yearly wage, every minute he makes $536. And in the time that you are sitting here listening to me this morning, that is roughly just north of $16,000. So, Michael, our lead pastor, and Michael, my friend, Michael, if you're looking for what the time of a guest speaker is worth, I think $16,000 is a pretty nice figure that I'd be happy to walk away with. Oh, and by the way, this kid Shane is 20 years old. 
20, and he just got $281 million. When I was in college and 20 years old, I thought it was really cool when I found 20 bucks in my jeans pockets from the winter before, and I felt like I was rich for the day because I had an unexpected $20. I read a news article about this kid, and he says that he retired from his job. And again, when I read that, I'm like, bro, nobody likes you. You are the worst. You can't retire from something that you never even started. You're in college. But for this kid, once was enough. And the story that we're going to look at today as we continue in this parable series, the storyteller series, is similar to this guy Shane because there's a lesson in the Bible where a man comes into a large sum of money all at one time. Once was enough. So, yes, this does mean that we are talking about money in church today. And if you're a first-time guest, which I know we have some in the room, I've met you. Uh, If you are skeptical about church, you're like, yep, this is the hook. I knew it. This is why I don't go to church. This is why I don't come back. This is why I don't trust the church, because it's going to happen inevitably. The money subject is going to come up. I get it. Money can be a touchy subject, but every week when we take offering, we say, if you don't feel comfortable, if you're not sure, if you're skeptical, let the offering plate pass. We want to earn your trust first. So even though money is a touchy subject, I'm asking you not to check out and think about all the reasons why you want to walk out those doors, but rather instead to intentionally engage and dig into what the next few minutes are going to have in store for all of us. So let's jump straight into it. We're in Luke chapter 12. We're going to be through verses 13 through 21. It'll be up on the screen. We're going to start with verses 13 through 15. Luke 12, 13 through 15. Someone in the crowd said to him, him meaning Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, addressing the whole crowd, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, whenever you read the Bible, you should be a curious reader, or in this case, a curious listener. One of the first things this tells us is that there is a crowd around. And so I'm like, why is the crowd there? Is it a, a significant event that I don't know about? Is it some type of holiday? So I want to dig in and learn more. So I dig into the context, which is just very simply what comes before and what comes after the part of the Bible that I'm looking at. And that tells you that in the beginning of the chapter, there are thousands of people gathered around, and the crowds are so intense that they're literally trampling each other, trying to get to listen to what Jesus is teaching on. And so this man throws out this question in front of the crowd, uh, not a question, sorry, rather a statement, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now basically what that means in that society at that time, the oldest male child got all of the inheritance. He got the cattle, the sheep, the goats, he got the land, he got the house. All of the forms of money in that day went to the oldest male child, and he was under no obligation to share that with his siblings. We talked a little bit about inheritance last week also. Michael told us inheritance isn't earned or deserved. You being born does nothing to give you the right to any kind of inheritance. It's it's kind of ridiculous that he is greedy about something that he did nothing to rightfully earn. 
So basically, this man thinks it's unfair that his brother, his older brother, is much wealthier than he is. And so he's telling Jesus, hey, this isn't fair. Tell him to give me my share because I want money too. And Jesus' response to this man and to the whole crowd is to say, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. I love what Jesus says there when he says to be on guard. I think of it in terms of we have a 20-month-old daughter right now, and we live right across the street from the hospital downtown, and there is a park right near the hospital. And she knows enough to know that the park is there, but she doesn't know enough to know that she's too small, that if we cross the street, the cars won't see her. So when we go to the park, I make sure that I am on guard for what she isn't, and I am very conscious of the cars. To be on guard, the words that Jesus used, it's not passive. It doesn't happen by accident. You don't luck into being on guard. Being on guard is purposeful. It's a choice, and we actively choose to make that choice or not make that choice in our own lives. And it's very interesting that Jesus doesn't specify money. He doesn't call out money. He calls out Greed. Don't be greedy. And in this example, the desire for money is the form of greed that Jesus picks up on. And it can be easy to get caught up in this desire for money and miss out on the deeper significance behind this. Greed is the outward sign of a deeper problem. I'm going to say that again. Greed is the outward sign of a deeper problem. What is this man's desire for money? That tells you what his greed is. Does he want to be significant? Does he want to be a somebody in his society? Does he want people to like him, to be accepted, to be noteworthy? He is greedy for something, and he sees money as the avenue to tap into that greed. And when you break it down like that, all of a sudden, this isn't just a story from 2,000 years ago that no longer applies to my life, but this is something that I can identify with. This is something that we can identify with because we all have those deep desires within us. So I ask you, what is it that you want too much? An unhealthy obsession that you have. What is it that you want too much? Are you offended when people don't show up to your plans? When you put together some kind of event and you want to have the perfect party but people don't show up, are you offended by that? Why is the natural next answer? Why are you trying so hard to win that person's affection, whether romantically or interpersonally on a friendship level? So you ask these questions, and you discover the why, and you discover what the greed is in your own life. I'm a current doctoral student at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. And if you've never been there, I would never recommend going there. You're not missing a single thing. But I spent two years on campus. And as a graduate student, I got involved with this campus ministry called Crew. And I had a lot of time to invest in the young undergraduate men. And so there was a guy named Steve Risky, and Steve Risky pulled me and two other guys aside who were helping to lead this campus ministry, and we spent time together every single week. And when I say that Steve Risky is a genius, I actually legitimately mean that Steve is a genius. His IQ level is off the charts. So we would sit down, the four of us, and sit and talk and hang out once a week. And what I mean by that is really the three of us would just shut up 
and listen to this genius talk to us, and he was mesmerizing in what he said. And I'm going to give you the cheap CT version that's not nearly as cool as what Steve would say, but he said one of the things that you might have to deal with when you are building relationships with these young men on campus is the issue of pornography. And so one week we talked about the issue of pornography, and Steve said, pornography is not the problem. And in my head, I'm like, okay, wait a minute, hold up. You are supposedly a genius, but you're telling me that pornography is not the problem. Something just doesn't add up there. But Steve continued on, pornography is a problem, but it is not the problem. When men seek out pornography, there is a deeper desire that they want that pornography to fulfill. They want to be accepted. They want to feel powerful. They want to feel love. They want to feel in control. And in that moment, when they have that desire to go to pornography, that's the outward reflection of a deeper inner problem. And Steve said, until you tap into that deeper problem and tackle that problem, you're never going to solve the issue of pornography in a man's life. Jesus sees the desire for money, but until he tackles the deeper desire within this man's heart, he's not going to settle this man's desire for money. And he knows that, so Jesus addresses the deeper need, which is greed. So Jesus begins to tell them a parable, the parable that we're going to look at today. We're going to start in verse 16 and read through verse 21. He told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. There's a comedian that I enjoy listening to. His name is Michael Jr. And when I need a break from life, I just take, uh, look him up on YouTube for a couple minutes and enjoy some of Michael Jr.'s humor. And Michael Jr., as I've learned a little bit more about his story, he talks about this idea called the hook. And he has created his whole entire profession on this idea of the hook. And see, when he's creating his, his jokes, he leads you in a direction that you think you know the punchline is going, but the hook comes and the funny comes when the punchline is delivered in a different avenue than what you expect. As I was talking to my dad, who's been a pastor for longer than I've been alive, about this sermon and about this passage of the Bible that we're looking at, he told me that Jesus uses the idea of the hook in his parables. He sets the crowd up. He leads them in a certain direction where they think they know the predictable outcome. And then the hook inevitably comes. Only this time he's not Michael Jr. creating jokes. He is creating a message and sharing an impact with his crowd that he wants them to learn. And so we're going to look at this idea of the hook in the story that's developed. And I love studying stories. One of the reasons I love studying stories so much is because I have a master's degree in Storytelling. 
That is real. I promise. There is a piece of paper in my basement, a very fancy, expensive piece of paper that has my name and Masters of Storytelling on it that certifies that there is a real degree that exists, and I have a Masters in Storytelling. And so what Michael Jr. is doing is capitalizing on a great storytelling technique that Jesus perfected in the Bible. To understand a little bit more about this story, a common assumption in biblical times was that wealth meant that you were blessed by God. So if you are rich, you must be doing something right because God is blessing you. And so when Jesus starts out by saying there is a certain rich man, the crowd tunes in because, hey, this cat's a somebody. He's got it going on. I want to be like this guy when I grow up. He's a somebody in our society. I want to pay attention to what Jesus has to say about this guy. And so when Jesus says then he has a plentiful harvest, the crowd is like, well, no, duh, he's rich, he has favor with God. Of course, God is going to show him more favor by giving him a plentiful harvest. And so the crowd recognizes and identifies with this man because they all want to be like this man. And we've talked about this just a little bit at Collective, and that idea simply is not true. Michael has briefly mentioned before that we wish we could tell you if you follow Jesus, Everything in your life is going to be perfect. But that's just not true. It doesn't exist. However, that's what the crowd thought. So this man, in his richness, an extra rich, a bountiful, plentiful harvest, has a dilemma. What do I do? I have so much stuff that I have no place to put it. Poor guy. What a problem. And so we've all read the story. We know he decides to tear down his barns, build bigger ones, and then he throws out the line where he says to himself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. From this one line, a couple of things stick out to me. Number one, his response is natural for somebody who doesn't love Jesus. Now, we don't know the state of his religious condition, if he loves Jesus or not. But if you don't love Jesus, it is only natural to think about yourself. You have nothing to alternate your worldview that you should think about others first. And so if he doesn't love Jesus, his response is very natural. I'm going to think about myself. I'm going to build my wealth, build my portfolio. I'm going to retire early. I'm going to be Shane Missler. It is completely natural to think about yourself. But based on Jesus' response, which we'll get to in a minute, it teaches all of us something. Whether we love Jesus, whether we're skeptical, whether we just got dragged here against our will this morning, we're all going to be held accountable for what we do with our riches. Jesus cares about how we spend our money and what we do with our money. And that is true no matter where you are on the, I love Jesus, I'm in this every Sunday, or I'm just checking this out for the first time. The next thing I learned from this man's line is that hard work turned into laziness. I don't want to pretend I'm a farmer. I'm not a farmer. I don't think I could hack it out in the fields every single day. But if you want to know what hard work is, go hang out with a farmer for a day. You're either going to sleep better than you ever have in years, or your body's going to be hurting so much that you're not going to sleep at all. But farmers are hard workers. This guy produced an abundantful, uh, a plentiful harvest, and it didn't just happen by accident. It was a choice. He chose to work very hard in his field, and that was reflected in the harvest that came. 
Work is a good thing for us. Somewhere along the way, this man forgot that. Thomas Edison is credited with saying, opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls, and it looks like work. It's very interesting. Uh, My favorite book of the Bible is Genesis. It's the first book in the Bible. And when God is telling the story of how mankind came to be on the earth, the first man he put on earth is Adam. And Genesis 2.15 tells us one of the very first things God did. As soon as man appeared, God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. One of the very first things that we are told to do is to work. And hard work is good for a multiple number of reasons. And somewhere along the way, this man forgets that, and his hard work turns into laziness. He stops creating, and he starts consuming. And we as people were never meant to be pure consumers. The big thing is it all comes down to this. His response is all about him. His response shows the greed that is in his heart. It's the outward sign of a deeper problem. And so this is where Jesus drops the hook. This is where the hook comes in. Everything that he has said so far, the crowd agrees with, but the hook comes in with two simple words when Jesus says, you fool. Cognitive dissonance means a feeling of discomfort leading to an altering of your attitudes, beliefs, or values. As a professor here in town, I teach this with my speech communication students, this idea of cognitive dissonance. And I like to describe it as you kind of feel the bottom falling out of the room. You're all of a sudden aware of the weight of the silence in the room. Nobody's rustling around with papers, playing with their phones. Nobody's getting up and moving. Everybody is in tune and captivated by the speaker. Because something is happening, something is resonating with the audience, usually something that bumps up against our attitudes, beliefs, and values. Especially in persuasive speaking, the ability to create and build cognitive dissonance into your speech is a sign of success and a benchmark that speakers shoot for every single time they speak. Jesus does this with two words. Here comes the hook. The crowd is engaged. It's something that they weren't expecting. And so now with two simple words, the story completely changes. Jesus has captivated their attention. And from there, there's not much left that needs to be said. The shock factor has been achieved. They are in tune. They're waiting for his next words. And if you look at the story, most of the buildup is to this point, and there's not much that comes after Very simply, Jesus says, your life will be demanded. What you have will be given to others. Don't be like this man. So I think as we begin to study this sermon and begin to apply it to our own lives, there's a couple of questions that come to my mind. And number one is, in what ways has God given you an abundant harvest? How much free time do you have Man, I thought I had a lot of free time, and then I had a child, and we have a second on the way, and I realized free time is kind of a thing of the past now. But how much free time do you have? Is that your plentiful harvest? What are your talents? What are you good at? 
Do you have a beautiful house that's great for entertaining? And yes, do you have a lot of money as well? What is your abundant harvest? And the response to that is, are you using these things to build up yourself, or are you using these things to further God's kingdom? The next question is, in what ways is your life all about you? How do you identify with this man in the story? In what ways is your life all about you? There's a couple of different checks that you can kind of determine if your life is all about you. Number one, look at your social media. Pull it up. Look at what you've posted, tweeted, blogged, whatever it is that you do. Look at it for the last couple of weeks. And you say, wait, that's mine. That's my personal page. It is. But you can use social media to build other people up. And it doesn't have to be all about you. When's the last time you gave something away that wasn't junk or something you wanted to get rid of? When is the last time that you were generous by choice? And here's a real practical example from my life this week. I was on Facebook and I saw that the Religious Coalition, who we just partnered with in the last quarter, posted that they are in dire need of a few things. Number one, being diapers. And as I said, we have one kid, and in about four or five weeks, we're going to meet our second kid, and we have double diapers coming to our house very quickly, lots of diapers in our house. And so when the Safeway on 7th Street went out of business about a month ago, everything was 30% off. And some people naturally think food, but I naturally think diapers. So we looked it up. It was a great deal, and I got cart after cart after cart of diapers. And in our house right now, we have a ginormous wall of diapers because we're going to use them and so how this applies to me i saw that on facebook that the religious coalition in frederick is in dire need of diapers that we have and my response was nah somebody else would do that those are my diapers i got those for my kids I was smart with my money, Jesus. I know you hold me accountable. I was smart. I invested in a good deal. Those are mine. And I can't help but think if Jesus was in the room today, he would look at me and he would look at my diaper wall and he would say, (laughs) yep. (laughs) He would say, you are the fool. You, the person who was talking about this very subject to a group of people, you are are the fool. I think a really great way to wrap all this up, every day on the first day of class with all of my students, I do different activities to build this atmosphere that's welcoming, where students want to get to know each other, learn more about the content that's happening in the next few weeks. And so there's one student named Olivia spoke up about this activity that I do. There's a lot of things that we do where they get to know each other And I tell them they can get to know me by asking any question they want of their professor on the first day of class. Now, I'm not crazy, so I follow that up very quickly with, I do not have to answer your question if I do not want to, but you're welcome to ask whatever comes to mind. And so they normally ask, like, what's my favorite pet? What's your favorite color? How long have you been teaching? Very simple, easy questions. This last semester... On the last class of the day, a student named Olivia raises her hand, and she says, what's the meaning to life? And I said, I have no idea. 
And I said, I'm sorry, Olivia, I don't know. I'm going to have to think about this and get back to you. And for weeks and weeks, this question troubled me. How do I answer what's the meaning to life? And of course, I know because obviously I think the meaning to life is Jesus. But in my work as a professor with my students, I have to be careful of that boundary. And I also want to engage my students in such a way where I can tell them about Jesus without actually mentioning his name so that they are curious to learn more. And so I was thinking, how do I answer this girl's question? And I started thinking back about the life of my parents Anytime I need to go to, I go back to my parents, and I started thinking especially about my mom, and I caught this response in mind by thinking about the life of my mom. And so one day, Olivia raises her hand, and she says, hey, you haven't answered my question yet. And I said, no, I haven't, but I have an answer for you today. And it was that cognitive dissonance in the room. All the students stopped. They were curious, too. They wanted to know the answer to this question. And I said, Olivia, I think you're catching on to the meaning of life the day that you realize your life is not about you. And I think if Jesus was in the room today, a great way to summarize this story, for me and my diaper wall, for you, you're catching on to the meaning of life when you realize that your life is not about you. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for the chance to be here today to learn more about your word. I thank you that you have challenged me as I have looked and prepared for this sermon, the topic for the week. And I thank you that you are holding me accountable as well. We thank you that you show your love for us and that you care about the things that we are greedy for. And you care about healing whatever our needs are. So Jesus, I pray that we take that to heart this week. We look at our lives, we take a step back, and we realize, in what way is my life all about me? And how can I be more like you and freely give to other people? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.